Well, tonight, um, I'll be starting a series on the signs of the last days. And we'll have uh, two nights of it, the Lord willing. For years and years in my Christian life, I had very little interest in prophecy. The reason being, I think, that uh, if prophecy is true, and if God, in effect, is going to bring to pass that which is going to happen, I thought it was not really important that I know what was going to happen, since it was going to happen anyway. And I was more interested in men and women and boys and girls coming to know the Savior, that they might escape from an eternity separated from God. But a few years ago, God began to speak to me about that. He reminded me that the Scripture says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And there is such a tremendous amount of the Bible that deals with prophecy which I had totally ignored. And so God really laid on my heart to do something uh, in the area of studying eschatology. Now, if you don't know what that means, I think that's some two-bit word that means uh, the end times. I think that's what that means. Don't I sound erudite? You know, eschatology, does that sound good? I might even fool somebody and they'd think maybe, uh, you know, maybe I was a theologian, Elvin, but then if they'd listen shortly, they'd know better than that. So tonight we'll start, but before we do, let's pray, shall we? And Father, again tonight, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, might be acceptable in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. After having done some work, I saw that there are at least four advantages to the study of prophecy. One is to reaffirm and assure us of the relevancy of the Word of God to our lives today. Secondly, to comfort and encourage all those who know Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 4.18, the Bible says, So comfort ye one another with these things. That's talking about the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus. The third advantage is to encourage each of us to live a holy and a godly life. In 2 Peter 3.11, the Bible says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy living and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, in which the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The fourth advantage is, knowing the terrors of the tribulation, the uncertainty of the time of Christ's return, and the fact that those who remain when he returns will have no second chance, to motivate us to share Christ with our friends and our families and our neighbors and our business associates while there is still time. The foundation for prophecy is the sovereignty of God. God is a God of law and order. In Isaiah 14, 24 in the Amplified, the Bible says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought and planned, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purpose, so shall it stand. A little further in that same chapter, down in the 27th verse of the 14th of Isaiah, it says, For the Lord of hosts has made his plan. Who can unmake it? The outstretched hand is his hand. Who can hold it back? Further than that, God is sovereign in the affairs of nations. In Acts 17, 26, in the Living Bible, it says, He created all the people of the world from one man, Adam, 
and scattered the nations across the face of the earth. He decided beforehand which should rise and fall and when. He determined their boundaries. That sounds like God may be in control of the nations, doesn't it? He decided when they would rise, when they would fall, and what the extent of their geographical boundaries would be. Again, we find in the 12th chapter of the book of Job, in the 23rd verse, God speaking says, I raise up a nation and then destroy it. I make it great and then reduce it to nothing. God also is sovereign as far as power is concerned. In the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel, in the 35th verse, the Bible says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will among the inhabitants of the earth and the armies of heaven, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? In Psalm 115, 3, the Bible says, But our God is in the heavens, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Yes, God is sovereign as far as power is concerned. But further than that, he is sovereign in the lives of individuals. In Job 23, verses 13 and 14, Job is speaking and he says, speaking of God, but he is of one mind, and who can change him? What his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth a thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Job said that God performs the thing that he's decided to do as far as my life is concerned, and many such things are with him. But further than that, our God is sovereign in history. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, J.B. Phillips puts it this way, For God has allowed us to know the secret of his plan, and it is this, He purposed in his sovereign will that all human history should be consummated in Christ that everything that exists in heaven and in earth shall find its perfection and fulfillment in him. The last word in history will not be spoken by the disciples of Karl Marx. The last word in history will be spoken by, spoken by Jesus Christ himself. Yes, he is sovereign in history. If God is sovereign, and he is, then prophecy must be fulfilled. Concerning prophecy, there are just two positions we can take looking at what has happened in the world to date. One position is we can say that God really did rig it up, that he is running the world according to his plan. Or we can say that these things which have been prophesied and have come to pass are merely the result of probability and chance. Now, if we take the second position, that what has happened in the fulfillment of prophecy thus far has to do with just probability and chance, uh, we have some interesting things to consider. In Numbers, the 23rd chapter and the 19th verse, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and will he not make it good? In Old Testament times, prophecy meant foretelling the future. The Bible teaches that the way to tell whether or not a man is a genuine prophet is whether or not everything that he prophesies comes true. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 22, the Bible says, When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is a thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. If a man claimed to be a prophet, and ninety times prophesied exactly what was going to happen, and it happened just that way, and the ninety-first time he prophesied something was going to happen, and it did not come to pass, that man, the Bible says, is not a prophet. Here are some prophecies 
that we see in the Old Testament regarding the Lord Jesus Christ that we know were perfectly fulfilled in his life, his burial, and his resurrection. First of all, we are told in Daniel 9.25, the date of Christ's birth. If you would read that in the Living Series, you'd find that it mentions 484 years. That's the 69 weeks of Daniel. It says, From the time that Jerusalem began to be rebuilt until the appearance of the Anointed One will be 484 years. Now, this was written in the time of Daniel. If you go back and check your biblical history, you'll find that Nehemiah received permission from the king where he was a captive to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the exact time from when he began to rebuild the walls until the time that Jesus Christ was born was 484 years. Isn't that amazing? In Micah 5.2, the birthplace of Jesus was foretold. It was foretold that he would be born in Bethlehem, and he was. In Isaiah 7.4, the manner of his birth was foretold. It was said that he would be born of a virgin, and sure enough, he was. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, his ancestry was foretold. It was said that, say it, it was said that he would come from the tribe of Judah and be of the lineage of David, and that's exactly where he came from. In Malachi 3, 1, that it was prophesied that there would be a forerunner before his birth who would prepare the way for him, a harbinger. And sure enough, there was John the Baptist, the harbinger of Jesus. Other prophecies we go into, time does not allow, refer to his ministry, his power, his character, his healing, his miracles, that the Gentiles were including, included the saving character of his ministry, the fact that he was rejected, and his death. And incidentally, 14 times in the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah, the means or method of his death were clearly spelled out, and in all 14 instances, his death exactly fulfilled the prophecies. That's just a little background to give you some idea of what the Old Testament did in the way of prophecies. Now, Jesus himself predicted in the book of Matthew many things regarding his own death. Here we've just mentioned 20 or 25 details about the Messiah which were foretold hundreds and hundreds of years before ever he was born. And these details were very accurately carried out to the very last minute detail in the life, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Bible gives us over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus, which were perfectly fulfilled in his life. Now, the question facing us tonight is this. If that's true, would, would these 300 things which were foretold hundreds of years before his birth have been fulfilled by chance, or were they fulfilled by the sovereign power of God? That's the question. The decision's yours. Let me tell you something about the law of probability how it works. There was a fellow in California recently who, who wrote a paper, he got a Ph.D., by figuring out the law of probability of all the monkeys in Africa running across one typewriter and typing out perfectly, without mistakes, every book that has ever been written in the English language. Now, did you get that? No place but California would give a man a Ph.D. on that one, you know. No place in the world. All the monkeys of Africa running across the same typewriter and typing out perfectly without mistake every book which has ever been written in the English language. Now, the mathematical probability expressed in that is, it, it, it's, uh, let me find it here, it's 10 to the 63rd power. That's the mathematical probability of that happening. 
give you another concept of it. All, if all the particles in the universe, down to the size of an atom, all the particles in the universe expressed mathematically, if you break them down, all the particles as we know it, broken down into the size of atoms expressed mathematically, would be 10 to the 79th power. That's all the particles in the entire universe as we know it, broken down into the size of atoms, that would be 10 to the 79th power. Now, the law of probability says that there would be a higher number than that to have 300 prophecies written hundreds of years before by numbers of men to be perfectly fulfilled in the life of anyone. That gives you some idea of where you stand if you say, well, it just all happened by chance. Well, you can take, you can take your pick. Uh, personally, I think people would have to be intellectually dishonest to believe that what has happened in the fulfillment of prophecy was, in fact, uh, by chance. Now, I've got, a little, uh, I've got a little chart up here on the wall. Peter, you come up and unveil that with you. The reason I want Peter to unveil it is when he pulls everything down, I want you to laugh at him, not me. <laughs> I didn't put it up, and I'm not going to pull it down. Oh, I'm ready, man, you bet. Woo, look at that. Now, what do you think of that? Let me get out my pointer. We may have to work on that a bit. This Bible map shows what I believe to be the content and the harmony of the purpose of God. From eternity past to eternity future. And his purpose has always been and is today and will continue to be wrapped up in a few words. And here it is. The purpose of God. He is calling out a people for his name, for an eternal possession, for his glory. And God's been working at that since the creation of man. There are seven major dispensations of time. You can call them time frames if you want to. You may not agree as to the number. I think you'll have to agree biblically that they exist. From the, 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 the seven major dispensations from eternity past to eternity future. The first one is the age of innocence. You'll see it marked as number one on the chart. That particular span of time ran from the creation of man whenever God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and runs up until the time of the fall of man when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and decided to go their own way. That is known as the dispensation of innocence. The second one is a dispensation of conscience. This runs from the fall of man until the destruction of the world by flood. At the time of Noah, a period of approximately 1,656 years. The third one is human government. This runs from the time of the flood when God destroyed the whole world except for Noah and his family and the animals in the ark up until the time of the Tower of Babel when God came down and confused the languages of all people. Approximately 427 years. The fourth time span is known as the dispensation of promise. This is when God called Abram to go out of Ur of the Chaldees and to go into a land that he didn't know. The dispensation of promise runs from the time that Abraham was called to the time when the Jews came out of bondage in Egypt, a period of some 430 years. The fifth one is the dispensation of law. This runs from the time that the Jews came out of Egypt, delivered from there by God through Moses until the time of Christ when the Ten Commandments were given in that period, 1,491 years. The sixth period is the period of grace. This runs from the advent of Christ to the earth to the rapture 
when he comes to take out his church. We do not know how many years that will be because this is the time in which we are living. We are now living in the dispensation of the grace of God on the other side of the cross. The next great event on God's calendar will be the rapture of the born-again believers. When Jesus Christ comes and takes us who know him out of the earth, and then after that will come seven years of tribulation, spoken of in the books of Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. And this dispensation runs from the cross to the crown, from the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost until the rapture when Jesus comes to take out his people. The seventh dispensation is the kingdom age. This will be characterized by several things. The regathering of the Jews to Jerusalem. The millennial period when Jesus Christ in his second advent will come and set up an earthly kingdom which he will reign for a thousand years. And those who know Jesus Christ who have been taken out of the rapture will return with him and will reign with him from Jerusalem for a thousand years. At the end of that time, Satan will be released for a short time and because he knows his time is short, it will be a real furious time as far as the world is concerned. And after Satan's release for a few years, then will come the great white throne judgment when all the wicked dead will be resurrected. They will be judged out of the things that are written in the books according to their works. And then will come the destruction of the world and the heavens as we see it in Second Peter 3. Then the new heaven and the new earth will come and we will spend all eternity in the presence of God with Jesus Christ. In Revelation 21.1, the Bible says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth will pass away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Have you heard much of this before? Yes? No? Yes or no? Have you heard much of it? Not much? Does this sound like strange doctrine? Well, I'll tell you, as it goes along, it picks up. Let's look a little more carefully at these dispensations with the idea of mind in mind of seeing what we can learn. All this theory is very interesting and fun and all that, but unless it has some application to our lives, it's really pretty dry, isn't it? In each one of the dispensations of time, you'll find some common things. One, there's a pattern of responsibility. God told them what to do. Secondly, there's a pattern of failure. They failed to do it. Third, there's a pattern of judgment. God said, here's what you're supposed to do. You didn't do it. And so the hammer fell on. But in the context of what God told them to do and their failure to do it and of the judgment that came upon them, there are lessons we can learn. So let's take a look quickly at some of the lessons that we can learn from these various ages. The dispensation of innocence was in the Garden of Eden. You know that story. When uh, Satan as a serpent appeared to Eve and and uh, talked her into taking a bite of the apple, and she fed some to Adam, and God had told them when they ate of the fruit of that tree, they'd surely die, and they did. But one of the things we can learn from that is that Satan always mixes truth with a lie. And a half-truth is harder to fight than a whole lie, which is the reason that many of these religious sects are running rampant in your country and in my country today. They are doing more with a lie than we've been doing with the truth. And biblically ignorant people who do not have sense enough to take and sift out the truth from the lies are taken in. That's true of the Mormons, it's true of the Christian scientists, it's true of the Jehovah's Witnesses. These people are taking the truth, mixing it with a lie, and they do it so subtly that unless you know the book, and most people who have not spent time in the book are not well enough informed to be able to pick out the truth from the lie, 
are trapped and snared, and that's the reason some of the sects are growing. Secondly, we can learn for today the lesson in this, that the failure of humanity has been infected by sin. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, there entered into the bloodstream of humanity a virus known as sin. And this virus has infected every man and woman and boy and girl that's ever lived since. The Bible indicates that we are sinners by nature as well as sinners by choice. That's the reason in Psalm 51, 5, David wrote, My mother has shapen me in iniquity, and in sin was I formed. Now, those of you who have children know that you do not have to teach your children to be bad. You have to teach them to be good. They come with a bad built in. This is one of the great proofs to me of the fact that we are sinners by nature. In Romans 5.12, it says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. His sin spread death through all the world, so everything began to grow old and die, for all have sinned. The theological term for it is original sin. We choose to do wrong. We have a bent to do wrong. And that's where it started, right there in the Garden of Eden. Next, the dispensation of conscience. The responsibility in the dispensation of conscience was to do good and not to do evil. To offer blood sacrifices, they failed because they became worse and worse. And actually, in Genesis 6, 5, it says that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every thought of the imagination of his heart was only evil continuously, and it repented God that he had made man. They got so bad that God said, I just wish that I hadn't even put this bunch together. They've gotten worse and worse, and the failure was that they did get worse and worse. Well, the judgment was the flood. The flood came, destroyed everyone except Noah, his family, and the animals that were in the ark. Well, what lessons can we learn from that? First, we can learn that conscience is not a reliable guide. Many of the people in Noah's day undoubtedly thought they were doing fine. They were very sincere, but they were very sincerely wrong. And there are many people today who think they're doing fine. Their conscience is clear, and they're very sincere about it. But they're sincerely wrong. The second great truth is that God in His great love has always provided an alternative to His judgment. You know, we often laugh at God's provision. They did as far as Noah was concerned. He spent 120 years building a big boat and it never had rain on the earth. The Bible says that a mist came up from the earth and watered it. Never had rain and Noah said to these people, get ready and build the boat that's going to rain. And they scoffed and they mocked and they made fun of him until it began to rain. And then the Bible says that God closed the door of the ark and the people were left out ceased to be funny then. You know, at that point, the laughter dies. Let me quote to you what some men have said when they were dying. Hobbes, the atheist, said, I am taking a fearful leap into the dark. Sir Thomas Scott, the atheistic chancellor of England, said, Until this moment, I thought there was neither God nor hell. Now I know and feel that there are both, and I am doomed to perdition by the judgment of the Almighty. M.F. Rich, the atheist, cried, 
I would rather lie on a stove and broil for a million years than to go into eternity with the eternal horrors that hang over my soul. I have given my immortality for gold and its weight sinks me into an endless, hopeless, helpless hell. Thomas Paine, a noted American infidel and author, said, I would give worlds if I had them. If the Age of Reason, the book which he wrote on atheism, if the Book of Reason had never been published, O Lord, help me. Christ, help me. O God, what have I done to suffer so much? But there is no God. But if there should be, what will become of me hereafter? Stay with me for God's sake. Send even a child to stay with me. For it is hell to be alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. Then the Christian physician who attended Voltaire, the French infidel, during his last illness, spoke to him often of the proof and the reality of Christ. Voltaire said to him one day, Yes, my friend, you're the only one who has given me good advice. Had I but followed it, I should not be in the horrible condition which I am now in. I have swallowed nothing but smoke. I have intoxicated myself with the incense that turned my head. You can do nothing for me. Send me a mad doctor. Have compassion on me. I am mad. The physician goes on to say that he expired under the torments of fury. The people in the age of conscience scoffed at Noah when he was preparing for the flood. But, brother, when the flood comes, I imagine they beat on the boat to try and get in. But it was too late. The door was locked. The third lesson from that age is only God can keep a man safe. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, which walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The eighth chapter of the book of Romans, when you get down to the end of it and you start with about verse 35 and come reading down through there, you know, who shall separate us from the love of God? One of the things that thrills my heart, it says, neither things to come, neither things present nor things to come can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, those of us who know Jesus can look to the future with hope and with expectancy. Now let me ask you a question at this point. Having looked at the chart, is there anybody here who would be interested in having a chart like that? Well, relax. Because uh, as you pass out tonight, I see you vaguely and vainly copying, trying to get all that down. Relax, it's all right. And when you pass out tonight, the ushers will have one of these for everyone so that you can take them home and look them over and study them and come back tomorrow night when we are going to hit this topic yet again. I just want to save you all the trouble of trying to copy that. I was going to wait until the end of the message, but I just didn't want you to put in all that work trying to copy it. Well, the third dispensation is the dispensation of human government. What happened there was God told them to be fruitful and to multiply replenish the earth. He told them that they should worship only him, and they failed in at least two ways. One, they gathered together in a place called Babel. They decided to build themselves a tower that would reach to heaven, and in their pride and self-conceit, in their own desire and self-will, they began to do that. They began to worship, in fact, themselves. The failure was they just didn't do what God told them. Judgment God came. He came down and confused their language so they couldn't understand each other, and of course the building of Babel quit. There's some lessons we can learn from that. One of them is it's futile to fight God. I can tell you something about that. Having been in the position of being on opposite sides from him more than once, and I want to tell you from experience, that's a bad thing to do. It's a whole lot like trying to fight a big bear with a little short stick. 
you haven't got much chance, you know. When you, when you get on an opposite side from God, you're just in trouble. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and that's right. You know, that's right. That's Hebrews 10, verse 31. Secondly, government will not solve our problems. You see, these people got together, and they were going to put together a deal and make it operate and build them a power that went to the sky. They were organized. That's government. They were organized and all functioning. But we learn from that that human government will not solve the problems of man. Matter of fact, more often than not, human government, in its end result, becomes the master of man instead of the servant of man. I read a book that was written here in uh, New Zealand. I read it before I came over, written by a fellow by the name of Bob Jones. Now, Bob Jones, I don't know what you think about him, or whatever you think, but he wrote a book, New Zealand, The Way I Want It. And if you can get through the verbiage, the man has some interesting things to say. I read, read the book, wrote him a note, told him I was going to be in Wellington. I'd like to have a chance to meet him if I could. Didn't hear a word from him. Got up to Auckland and went down to the White Heron to have a bite of, was it lunch? Yes, a bite of lunch at the White Heron. I think there was no one in the, in the dining room except us. There were six of us, I believe. And uh, one of the people with me said, uh, I believe the fellow over in the corner there talking to that man is Bob Jones. I said, oh. So I excused myself, went over. I said, one of you guys, Bob Jones? <laughs> you know the crazy American. He said, yes, I am. I said, I'm Gene Ward. I'm the guy who wrote you. Matter of fact, I sent him a copy of my latest book. which I wrote under a pseudonym. If you read the book, you'd understand why. <laughs> but uh, he said, oh, yeah. I said, I, I got your letter and didn't get a chance to get with you. He said, why don't you say I'm busy? He said, I haven't got time. just want to say hello and tell you I enjoyed your book. But anyway, the, uh, the book that he wrote, New Zealand the way I want it, it'll, it'll, do to, uh, it'll do to read. It really will. If you get through the verbiage, there's some good stuff in it. But human government will not solve the problem. You remember the League of Nations? Come and gone. Remember the high hopes with which we started the United Nations? It now has become little more than a, a debating society. Human government just will not get the job done. Third thing that we can learn from this dispensation of time is that God knows exactly what's going on. See, he didn't miss a trick. Proverbs 15 11 in the living it says, If the depths of hell are open to the eyes of God, how much more the hearts of all mankind. God sees the depths of hell... He reads every human heart. He knows exactly what's going on. The fourth dispensation, the dispensation of promise. The responsibility there was on Abram. God told him, I want you to go into Canaan and stay there. The failure was that when things got a little tough, uh, Abram bailed out of Canaan and went down to Egypt. The result was the children of Israel ended up in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. Now, we can learn some things about that. One, it's better to stay with God where you are than try to find greener pastures without Him. That's one thing to learn. I don't care wherever you're staying, if you're with God, it doesn't matter how tough it looks, it's better to be there than any place else you can hop around to. Second, God's discipline is good. Now, God doesn't discipline us because He likes to, but He disciplines us because He loves us. In Hebrews 12, 6, the Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. The 11th verse of the same chapter, it said, Discipline yields the fruitful, uh, the, the, the uh, peaceful harvest of a fruitful life. 
Hebrews 6, 12, verse 11. Psalm 30, verse 5 says that his anger endures but a moment because in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but, but the joy comes in the morning. And that's the reason he disciplines us. I think that's one thing we can learn from the dispensation of promise. Remember, God did send Moses and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, and eventually Joshua led them into the promised land. The dispensation of law, the Ten Commandments, were given. The responsibility was that the people were to recognize their own sinfulness and their own need compared to God and His requirements. You'll find the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19 if you'd like to look them up. The failure, they broke the law. And they rejected Jesus. Now this may surprise you a bit, that back in those days, these Jews rejected Jesus. The judgment was worldwide dispersion of the Jews as a nation. This was foretold in the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, 1,500 years before Christ was born, that the Jews, because of their rejection of the Messiah, would be scattered throughout all the earth. What are some of the lessons we can learn from that? One, we can't keep the law. Twice the Jews said, all that the Lord says we will do. Twice they said that, recorded in Scripture. The facts are, in and of ourselves, we cannot keep the Ten Commandments. We cannot measure up to God's standard. I've talked to people, I've had them tell me, Oh, Mr. War, my religion is the Ten Commandments. I say to them, Well, how you doing, brother? Did you ever uh, tell a lie? Did you ever steal anything? Did you ever experience lust in your life? How you doing on the Ten Commandments? I've had others say, uh, Well, my religion is the Sermon on the Mount. I say, Well, how you doing, brother? You know, I took our key men through a study of the Sermon on the Mount not long ago, just a verse at a time. It took us about, oh, it seemed like an eternity. I think it's probably nine months. And I want to tell you, if I'd known it was going to be as excruciatingly painful as it was, I never would have tackled it. Man, the Sermon on the Mount has got stuff in it that'll do you in. <laughs> I asked the old boy, how are you doing with the Sermon on the Mount? And the facts are that uh, he doesn't know the Sermon on the Mount from a side saddle on a pig, you know. <laughs> I've had fellows tell me, oh, my religion is, uh, is the golden rule. Do unto, uh, unto others you'd have them do unto you. I say, well, how you doing, brother? And you know, in honesty, if they'll be honest, they'll tell you, well, I'm not doing too good, and that's right. The Bible says that none of us are able to measure up to what God wants us to be. The facts are we just can't in ourselves. And that's one of the things we learn out of the dispensation of law. The law was given not in order that we might live up to it, but in order that it might bring us to Christ. The third chapter of the book of Galatians in the 24th verse, it says, Wherefore, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we may might be justified by faith. Not by keeping the law, not by works, but justified by faith. And whoever you are tonight, beloved, if you're here and you've never come to that point in time when as an act of your will you've invited Jesus Christ to come in and control your life, whatever else you are tonight, you are not a Christian. You may be a church member. You may be very religious. You may be very moral. You may be very clean, a fine husband, a fine father, a fine man in your community. But if you've never experienced the supernatural touch of God on your life, if you've never been born again, born from above, redeemed, saved, regenerated. Those are all good Bible words. If that's never happened to you, whatever you are tonight, you're not a Christian. And the law which God gave in the dispensation of law was to be our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. 
In Galatians 6, 9, the Bible says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. We learn that God's judgment is sure. In Hebrews 9, 27, the Bible says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, what? The judgment. That's what the Bible says. God's judgment is sure. Let me give you a little history. In A.D. 50, the Romans killed 50,000 Jews. Later, Nero killed another 40,000. In A.D. 70, Titus sacked the city of Jerusalem and killed a million Jews and captured and deported 97,000 more. They never have until this holy hour been gathered back, and they never will until the end of the church age with the when the regathering of Israel takes place. God said to them, boys, if you fail, you've had it. Loose translation. You're going to be dispersed, and they were. Well, the sixth dispensation is the dispensation of grace. We're living in that dispensation right now. We're living on the other side of the cross. The responsibility in, in, in the dispensation of grace is to repent of our sins and to believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ in order that we might be saved. That's the responsibility. The Bible says in John 1, 12, But as many as received him, to them, them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. In Romans 8, 14 it says, But as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So our responsibility in the church age, the dispensation of grace, that we should receive Jesus and be under the control of his Holy Spirit. And the failure, beloved, is that many today reject him. They're trusting in their good works, trusting in their church memberships, trusting in their baptism, trusting in their doctrinal soundness, instead of trusting in Jesus. And the resulting judgment will be damnation and eternal hell. The lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, the Bible says. Well, what are the lessons we can learn from the church age, the dispensation of grace that we're in? One thing we can learn is that Jesus Christ changes lives. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The man tells me that he's received Jesus Christ. There's no change in his life. There's no sign of the fruit of the Spirit in his life. He has no indication or inclination that he wants to obey God. I doubt his conversion experience, wouldn't you? In 1 John, the second chapter, in the third and fourth verse in the living, it says, How can we be sure that we belong to him? By looking within ourselves, are we really trying to do what Christ wants us to? Some, someone may say, I'm a Christian. I'm on my way to heaven. I belong to Christ. But if he doesn't do what Christ tells him to, he's a liar. That's pretty plain, isn't it? A man tells me that he knows Jesus and has no desire to follow him. King's X on that. There's something wrong because the Bible teaches that when Jesus enters a life, there's change. Well, the next great event in God's plan for history is the rapture. But before we talk about the rapture, let's stand up and sing, shall we? <laughs> I don't want Mike to fall asleep and fall out of his chair and hurt himself. What do you want to sing tonight? Anything particular? Fine, that's a good one. Let's see. Let's sing a hard one. Oh, do you know Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Do you know that? Man, let's sing. Let's sing the chorus of that, shall we? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory 
again. That's what we're going to talk about. He's coming again. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, the Bible says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive shall be caught up together with them in the air. Let's see, the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's right. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore... Comfort ye one another with these sayings. One of these days, by the grace of God, the trumpet of the angel of God will sound. Jesus Christ will appear in the air. The graves will open and all who have died in Christ will come forth. And we'll join them if we're still on earth and be gathered up together with them to him in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, I don't know all about that. But I know this about it. When we get gathered up, we're going to be with him, and that's good enough for me. So shall we ever, the Bible says, be with the Lord. Praise God. In Luke 17, the Bible talks about that. It says two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two in the bed, one will be taken, the other will be left. be two at the mill, one will be taken, the other will be left. Can you imagine what kind of day that's going to be? when all the people who know Jesus Christ are suddenly taken out of the world. I saw a bumper strip in our country, the bumper sticker, what do you call them? Here, bumper sticker? In our country the other day that I like pretty good, it says this, in the case of the rapture, this vehicle will be unattended. <laughs> I sort of like that, you know. Mm. When all the people who know Jesus are taken out of this world, the Spirit of God leaves the world, the godless forces that are being held back by the Holy Spirit of God are turned loose, then that's the reason they call it the tribulation because it's going to be rough. It's going to be tough. There'll be utter chaos. Then that's the reason they call it the tribulation because it's going to be rough. It's going to be tough. There'll be utter chaos as pointed out in the book of Revelation. We'll talk about that. There is no second chance. When Jesus comes and takes out his church, the people who had the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ and have instead rejected him will have no Second chance. Nothing to look forward to but the tribulation period and spending an eternity in the lake of fire. The Bible says they'll cry for the mountains to fall on them. They won't even be able to die. They'll jump into the ocean. Instead of drowning, they'll float. They'll try to commit suicide. Won't be able to do it. I tell you, that's going to be a terrible day when all these things take place and people can't even die. And during that period, the judgments of God will fall. There are basically six judgments of God. I want to talk to you tonight just about four of them because they're the ones that deal primarily with our own lives and where we are. The first judgment of God is the judgment of the believer's sin, S-I-N. There's a difference between sin and sins. Sin is the principle which is operating in us because of the fall of Adam. Sins are the acts that we commit because we are the sons of Adam. The old nature in us. And that judgment, the judgment of the believer's sin, took place in A.D. 30 on the cross of Calvary. 
That's where the believers sinned. The old sin nature was judged. The place was the cross. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And the basis of that judgment on the sin nature, our own sin nature, the basis of that judgment was the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. In Hebrews 10, 10, it says that he died once for all. Not a continuing sacrifice, but once for all he died, and that was the believer's judgment for sin. The result, the death of Christ and our own justification. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The judgment of the believer's sin at the cross of Calvary. The second judgment is the judgment of the believer's sins, plural, the actions that we have taken and done has nothing to do with the sin principle, but has to do with the failures, the sins that we commit day by day. <clears throat> I suppose there's anyone here that's living a holy, set-apart, and sanctified life and living above sin, you don't need to listen to what I have to say tonight about this particular judgment. You know, you can pass. Turn off your hearing aid. Each day we do commit things which are worthy of, of being called sins. We know that they're wrong. And what are we to do about it? When we receive Jesus Christ, our old sin nature is not totally eradicated. Although it's been judged at Calvary, it's not totally eradicated. The old sin nature is somewhat like a, uh, like a skunk hanging around our neck. Some people try and pretend that it's not there. But everybody else knows. Some people try to perfume it hoping that people won't notice. Other people try to apologize for it. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> I'll tell you what you might as well do is admit it. You know, you've got a skunk around your neck and that's it. <laughs> when the devil comes and accuses you, as he will, you know the Bible called him the accuser of the brethren? Let me tell you what you do when he comes and accuses you. You agree with him. He comes and says to you, Oh, you the biggest hypocrite. Say, <laughs> hey, Oh, yeah, that's right. Not only that, but you can say a lot more if you want to, but Jesus knew that when he bought me, and if you want to discuss it further, go talk to him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that's right. The effect of these sins, though, in our lives is that our fellowship with God is broken. In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, the Bible says, The Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, and neither his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities are separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Fellowship is broken. The psalmist David in Psalm 66, 18 said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Let me give it to you where you can understand it, those of you who are married. You go out and do something that you know your wife doesn't want you to do. You know it's wrong. She knows it's wrong. You know you did it. She knows you did it. You come home and get the silent treatment. <laughs> Have you ever had the silent treatment? Some of you are laughing. You've had that, I know. You see, Mama won't talk to you. The fellowship is broken. You feel badly. 
Mama feels badly. But when you finally come to her and say, hey, baby, I'm sorry, I was wrong. You know, please forgive me. And you kiss and make up. You feel better? <laughs> Mama feels better. But now the same thing is true with God. We sin. We know we've done wrong. He knows we've done wrong. The fellowship is broken. We feel badly being out of fellowship. He feels badly having us out of fellowship. But thank God that he has provided a way that we can take these known and unconfessed sins which break fellowship with him and we can do something about it. In 1 John 1, 9, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. The fellowship's restored. We come to him. We call it by what it is. Sometimes we want to slip off the corner there and slide around a bit, you know. Uh, we want to say, well, Lord, uh, today, uh, if, if I sinned as I admired the beauty of that woman as she went by, I want you to forgive me. I won't get it. You know, matter of fact, confession, the root word of confession means to agree with. So you need to call it what God called it. God, I lusted after that woman today. Forgive me. God says, okay. Okay, I got the picture now. You call, you call it like it was, and, and you're forgiven. But don't try and fake him out. You know, call it by what he calls it. You might say, well, Lord, uh, today in talking with that friend, I, I, I just tried to, uh, I tried to explain it a little more carefully and to make the picture big enough that he could really see it. You know, and if by chance I stretched it a bit and, and sinned, no, God says, I won't get it. He says, what happened was you lied. Now call it by the name that I call it. But if we come and confess our sin, he is faithful and just. You see, he doesn't, he doesn't forgive excuses, just sins. If we come and confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, God desires our fellowship, and that's the reason, one of the reasons, that whenever we have sinned and we have unconfessed known sin in our life, he whips on us until we get in line. Revelation 3.19, Jesus said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. That's what Jesus had to say. Some Christians are so insensitive that they don't even know what they're doing. Some of them think that God is some kind of a paternalistic old grandfather. He's going to just smile and, and overlook the sins in their life. Psalm 10, verse 11 says, They said in their heart, God had forgotten. He hideth his face he will never see. That's what some people say. They think God's not seeing. He's turned his face. He's looking some other way. Don't you believe that? That's the kind of tranquilizer that the devil will give you to keep you in limbo until he's got you where he wants you. The truth is, if you don't shape up, you're in trouble. Keeping short accounts with God can be compared to the time when I was in the army and they were teaching me to drive tanks. And they told me, said, now, with this tank, if you give it daily maintenance, it won't quit you when you're in combat. If every day you'll take the checklist and go over it, and when you find something wrong, call the mechanic, have him fix it, then when you get in combat, it won't quit you. But there were some people who didn't pay any attention to that. And when, when, when we got in combat, and I believed it, 
And I want you to know I went over that vehicle meticulously, day by day. They told me the same thing about my weapon, and I went over it meticulously, day by day, and kept it clean and well-oiled and operational. But some guys who didn't do that when we got in combat, their weapons jammed on them, and they're not here to report it. Their tanks failed, and they got burned up inside the tank. You know, two things always scared me to death in World War II, among others. I was scared when I landed and stayed scared till I came home. Found out the Germans were very serious. They'd kill you. Yeah, they would. But I was always afraid of being trapped in a tank and it on fire. And the reason that that worried me, I think, is because when you're sitting in the turret of a tank, you're surrounded by 75-millimeter shells. They're all around the inside of that tank because the, the gunner has to take those shells and put them in that gun, the breech is right there, right between you, and you fire that thing. And I always wondered what it would be like to be sitting in the turret of that tank and it catching fire and these 75-millimeter shells begin to go off. Ooh, boy. That, uh, that scared me just a little. Matter of fact, it scared me a whole lot. Then the other thing, they issued those of us who were officers what they called a mummy bag. Now, this is not in the notes. This comes without additional charge. A mummy bag was a, was a sleeping bag that was filled with down, really a good sleeping bag. And, and you put it up over your head, you know, and, and when you got in that thing and got zipped in, uh, the only thing that was showing was just your eyes and your nose. You know, that, that's all that stuck out. And I always wondered what in the world would happen if some night I'd wake up in this mummy bag and here I'd see a German soldier with a, with a rifle and a bayonet, you know, getting ready to run me and that bag through. And that really worried me because, man, you can't get out of those things this side of, you know, it's going to take some time and you can't run in it. You're trapped. There you are. Well, I finally solved that problem. I trained myself to sleep with my 45 automatic fully cocked and loaded in my right hand. That's right. <laughs> that may sound crazy, but that's the way it was. Yes, sir, I slept with that gun in my right hand, fully loaded and fully cocked. And I figured if I ever woke up and saw it, I'd raise that up and go, bang! <laughs> and I want you to know, when the men came to wake me in the morning, they always got a long stick. <laughs> Oh, boy. Woo! I don't know how I got off on that. Yeah, taking care of that tank, that's how I got off on it. You bet. Well, the same thing is true in life. If you keep short accounts with God, if day by day you'll check over your life and see where you fail when you get a little knock, and you come to God and say to him, Lord, uh, I'm here and I realize that I've got a little knock in my life and I confess it to you and I want you to handle it. He will. And keeping short accounts with God keeps him from having to do a major overhaul on you. I've had that done a time or two. Wouldn't recommend it. You know, much better to keep short accounts day by day as you go along. <clears throat> Be encouraged. If you receive Jesus, God is not going to give up on you. And he's not going to let you go. My dad, who's been gone 21 years now, used to love to fish. And he'd be out fishing, and a fish would take the bait, and he'd let him run and let him run and let him run, and finally he'd set the hook, you know. And he told me one day, he said, Son, you know God's like that. He said, He'll let you run 
and run and run and run. But the further you run, the harder it's going to be when he sets the hook. He said you can run far enough that he may set the hook hard enough to snap your neck off. I said, yes, sir. You know, I understood exactly what he was talking about. And it may be that's the reason you're at this conference. If you don't get anything else, if you get that, it may be worthwhile. Well, the third judgment is the believer's works. The judgment of the believer's works. That's going to take place at the rapture when he comes to take us out. The place is the judgment seat of Christ, which will be in the air. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, So then we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things he hath done in his body according to the, that he hath done, whether they be good or bad. The judgment of our works is not a judgment of condemnation. Remember Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The judgment of our works is a judgment of rewards, not of condemnation. And the basis of the rewards will be the works that we have done in the body as believers. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 and 13, it tells us that as we work in our Christian lives, depending on what we have done, whether we have built with gold, silver, and precious stones, or whether we have built with wood, hay, and stubble, that our works will be tried as by fire. If we built with gold and silver and precious stones, the works will remain. If we built with wood, hay, and stubble, they will be destroyed, yet we ourselves will be saved, yet so as by fire, the Bible says. The place this takes place is at the judgment seat of Christ. The Greek word for it is the bema, B-E-M-A. Now, the bema in the Greek games was the place where the judges sat in the athletic contest and the people came after the contest to receive the rewards that they'd made in, uh, in winning the games. Therefore, the judgment is not a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of reward. We will receive it from Christ, the re rewards that we have earned by our maturity and walking in obedience to Him. And at that point, He will give us crowns Paul talks about that. James talks about that. And we'll have the priceless privilege of laying these crowns at the feet of Jesus, our Savior, and our Lord and our Master. The fourth judgment is the judgment of the wicked dead and angels. And with this, I'll quit for the night. We'll pick up here tomorrow night and go on. Point out in Revelation 20, the 11th through the 15th verse. And it says, And I saw a great white throne, and the one who sat upon it, from whose face the earth and sky fled away, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before God, and the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things written in the book, each according to the deeds he had done. The ocean surrendered the bodies buried in them, and the earth and the underworld gave up the dead in them. Each was judged according to his deeds, and death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found recorded in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's where the lake of fire is, down there, all lost. The white throne judgment. God is keeping two sets of books. Double entry bookkeeping. One set of books has in it the deeds of all the wicked Philistines, those who do not know Jesus. All their deeds are kept in there. The other entry is the book of life. In it are the names of those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the great white throne judgment, the Bible indicates that all those who have not received Jesus will be judged according to their deeds out of the books that He's keeping on the deeds and that their eternal resting place will be the lake of fire, which is the second death. The Bible also teaches that those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life will escape the great white throne judgment. 
Boy, if your name is in the book of life, you have no judgment. You missed that one. Tomorrow we'll uh, take up at this point, and we're going to talk about future events. Where are we on this chart? What are the things which will be happening from now until the rapture? What's the tribulation going to be like? What will be going on? What does the Bible teach about that? Where will we be when the tribulation is going on? What is the millennium? When does it happen? What takes place? When do we get the new heaven and new earth? When, when does the old earth and all the heavens dissolve with fervent heat, as the Bible says? We'll be talking about that. And how can we know when the time is near? What are the events that God has, has placed in His Word? What are the signposts along the way that tell us when these events are coming to pass? We'll be talking about that tomorrow night, the Lord willing. But for now, let's pray, shall we? Father... I thank you for the privilege tonight of uh, taking a look at uh, what I believe to be your plan of the ages. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we tonight uh, pray, search our own hearts, perhaps even do a bit of study, that you might reveal to each of us in a very special way what it is that you're wanting to say to us regarding our own lives. Lord, thank you that you do not leave our way through life to happen's chance. But because of the great love that you have for us, you make our way plain. Thank you that you deal with us not in mass, but as individuals. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name.